When you see an all-timer I've been reflecting since memory tent on my pathfinder Quick reminder, never side with a sidewinder Uh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh yeah. Hello and welcome to the Rational Black Thought Podcast I'm your host, Neil Grio, And this is episode number 143 It's July the 1st, 2023 and the title for the overall episode this week is no, not a quote this week. Uh, it is just um, uh, a phrase, beyond the event horizon. So the episode title this week is beyond the event horizon. So let's get to the agenda and I'll give you a bit more information on why I selected that as the title this week. Uh, first up, um, uh, no feedback. So if you have feedback for the show, please send an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com and I'll be sure to mention what you have to say on the show. All right, let's get to the agenda. So first up on the agenda is the segment, What's on My Mind? And the title this week is The Massive Gravity of Racism. And that is also where the episode title comes from, uh, Beyond the Event Horizon. Uh, if you are aware, um, in uh, astrophysics, um, a, an event horizon is the boundary of a black hole uh, beyond which uh, nothing can escape. And so I'm equating that in the segment What's on My Mind with the gravity of racism uh, and that now that it is formed, it, it, is, it is a permanent fixture in our daily lives. So we'll talk about that. And then after the segment What's on My Mind, we'll cover the news and the news segment uh, this week could be summed up with just the fucked up uh, court uh, because the Supreme Court came out with uh, numerous decisions, almost all of which were beyond reason and beyond the law. Uh, and so we'll uh, go through and talk about them. Uh, the first uh, I, news story I'm titling the court sides with racists, uh, but what else is new? Uh, so that was one of the decision. And then the next story is the court also sides with white Christian nationalists. And so what's uh, a surprise about that either? And then the next one I'm just calling it's it, uh, the story. It's an all SCOTUS this week uh, because there's another decision that the um, Supreme Court came out with that is also bullshit. And lastly, the next one is also a Supreme Court decision, and this one is let them eat cake. So the only story, which is the last one that won't be related to Supreme Court decisions this week, I'm titling The Value of Life. 
so after the news, uh, we'll cover the segment, This Shit Is For Us. And the title this week is Ultimately, It Is Always Personal. And what I'm referring to in Ultimately is the fight uh, against uh, white supremacy-based oppression. Ultimately, it's an all, uh, always a personal thing. Uh, but, um, I want to talk about it from the uh, perspective of both personal and collective action. Uh, after that, Bible study with Atheist Mike. And in Bible study with Atheist Mike this week, I really want to dive down into the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism, uh, to say what are the differences and how did the scheme between, a scheme between the two actually, uh, form. So uh, that'll be our episode this week. And uh, to close out, I am just titling it the, the closing article or segment, Not Far From the Tree. And it is about a mother-daughter combination uh, that I think is awesome. So that's what we have on our agenda for this week. Let us take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get to the segment, What's On My Mind. Welcome back and welcome to the segment, What's on My Mind, where each week I just give you that, uh, what's been on my mind uh, for the week. And I had started thinking about this actually after I recorded last week. And so the title, as I mentioned in the intro, is The Massive Gravity of Racism. But I want to start the discussion this week actually with a quote from Derek Bell, which is one of the authors that I discussed uh, in last week's This Shit is for Us segment. Uh, this particular quote, though, is not uh, from his book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, which we did talk about. Uh, but um, this is related to some comments that he published regarding the Brown v. Board of Education uh, decision. And so Bell said, quote, success for the black person requires effective functioning achieved with the knowledge that his or her work will not be recognized or rewarded to the same degree as a white person doing the same thing, end quote. And so I start with that, and it is related to the overall title of this week. So, But before we get uh, to exactly how, let's expound on that, um, that overall uh, title for the, set, for the episode this week. Uh, and to do so, I want to explain what an event horizon is. So uh, an event horizon is, quote, the spherical outer boundary of a black hole loosely considered to be its surface. It is the point, according to NASA, that gra the gravitational influence of a black hole becomes so great that not even light is fast enough to escape it, end quote. And that uh, definition came from space.com. So you might be asking then, what then does um, an event horizon have to do and how is it related to that quote from uh, from uh, Bell? Uh, well, this is going to be a pretty pessimistic episode overall. I already explained that the news story is about what I consider to be false uh, or, in er or errant decisions made by the Supreme Court. Uh, and so I'm going to start with a, with a, pes with pessimism in this particular segment of what's on my mind. And it's for the most part going to continue through the rest of the episode. 
But what um, I am going to do in this particular episode is to use a black hole as a metaphor for systemic uh, racism. And I am saying that we are beyond the event horizon. So we we are beyond the point at which uh, there is there is nothing that can escape from a black hole. And we are beyond the point at which there is nothing that can or will change systemic oppression. Systemic oppression is here and it is. Uh, for the, it is, it is so large, it is so massive and so encompassing that it will never cease to exist. And so what Mr. Bell is saying is that the only way that an individual black person can be successful is if they recognize that their work will not be rec- recognized, compensated, or even acknowledged to the same degree as that of a white person. That's the reality. We have to function even though we know that we will constantly be negatively impacted by the headwinds of systemic oppression. So let me expand then on that analogy. First of all, though, one thing we should note is that black holes are not infinite in the sense that they never had a beginning. They have a beginning. A black hole is, quote, created when a massive star reaches the end of its life and implodes, then collapses on on itself. So a black hole takes up, and this is according to astronomy.com, a black hole takes up zero space but does have mass. Originally, it is most of the mass that was, that used to be a star. And black holes get bigger technically more massive as they consume uh, matter near them. So they, though they take up a zero space, as mass uh, it gets close to a black hole and is consumed by a black hole, that matter then is concerned, that, that matter is concerted, uh, converted to density, but not to space. That is, it takes up no more space. It is still zero. Uh, it still has zero uh, space. But the bigger they are and the larger the zone of no return, so the event horizon increases, then um, uh, they, are, they, they have the point of no return uh, around that, that black hole, uh, which is, again, where anything entering into their territory is irre- irrevocably lost to the black hole. And by irrevocably, that means that it can never be retrieved. So this is the, this point of no return is called the event horizon. And again, like I said, that was according to astronomy.com. So the analogy that I'm using is this. Once a black hole is created, it becomes self-sustaining. That is, it consumes the mass of anything that moves beyond its event horizon and therefore technically has no end. It did have a beginning, so it's not infinite, but it will have no end. Similarly, racism had a beginning. In fact, the concept of race itself had a beginning. But systemic racism seems to be permanent in that it also is self-sustaining. Racism changes its expression, but the underlying energy is persistent and self-sustaining. So here is an excerpt from a scholarly paper that explains this concept better than I. And the paper is titled Racism and the Mechanism of Maintaining Racial Stratification in Black Families. And it was written by uh, uh, Diedrich uh, T. Williams. 
And so the, the, the paper basically is on the effects of racism in the black family. But I believe that the ideas that are presented in this paper can be extrapolated to all aspects of society and therefore all, uh, in the, the myriad ways that, uh, all aspects of society are impacted by systemic oppression. So if our ability to form families, in my opinion, is distorted by systemic racism, it is certain, it is a certainty that racism is a major contributor to all of our perceived disparities vis-a-vis -vis the white race. So Mr. William provides the following uh, explanation in his paper. Although most people would not debate the existence of racial disparities and disproportionalities, the debate tends to emerge about why racial inequality exists and persists. Conventional family science tends to focus on individual behavioral ex explanations. For example, the rise in non-marital childbearing among black women, as an example. Um, at, and they, they focus on that, uh, the author says, at the uh, expense of reproducing racial essentialism. These explanations are grounded in and, 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 and take it for granted assumptions about race and racism that do not consider the broader implications of racial stratification. Although most scholars view race as a social construction, the social construction heuristic is seldom employed in racial inequality scholarship. In fact, conventional racial differences Research, researchers almost always takes an essential approach, albeit unintentionally. From this perspective, race represents biologically or culturally real groups and explanations of documented racial differences are tainted by a cultural essentialist lens. Although contemporary studies do not make explicit arguments about race as biology, cultural essentialism in family research refuses to die. This is especially important to consider and address given the scientific racism persists in the U.S. One of the biggest limitations of contemporary research on racial inequality in families is that most studies run the risk of reproducing an essentialist logic of race by A, presenting race as an ahistorical demographic variable, and B, assuming race, racism is episodic, or a relic of the past, and C, by framing individual level behaviors as central ex explanations for racial inequality. So, end quote. So, um, uh, well, first, uh, and I, so let me expand on that in, by continuing to uh, quote from the paper. Those three things that uh, the Arthur talked about. First, he says, treating race as a, a historical demographic characteristics of population reifies race as an essentialist biological characteristic by exploring and comparing racial variations across different outcomes without explaining what race is or how racial categories and hierarchies were historically constructed. This approach treats black disadvantage and white advantage as unrelated and the point of emphasis in research becomes identifying the mechanisms that can make black families more like white families. Second, the idea that racism is episodic draws attention to the belief that it is a thing of the past and that no longer, and it is no longer a cause of racial inequality. The assumption is, is that racism is era specific and only happened during certain quote episodes end quote of American history. Most scholars argue that black families' adverse conditions can be best understood in the context of overt racism, i.e. slavery and Jim Crow laws. 
In the past civil rights era, however, this leads to an errant assumption that racism is no longer an issue to be considered or addressed in research related to racial inequality. And third, given that racism is viewed as a thing of the past, individual level behaviors are now identified as the reason racial inequality persists persist in the United States, especially in the post-civil rights era. Contemporary research tends to over-invest in using individual-level characteristics or behaviors to explain group differences. For instance, family structure, that is marriage versus non-marriage, is one of the most prevalent individual-level explanations to address the black-white gap across indices of well-being. This logic dates back to the 1960s and the Moynihan Report. The general idea was that racial variations in these behaviors for example, unmarried childbearing, may help to understand variations in the outcome of interests, things like poverty or family formations. This approach is ineffective in addressing racial inequality because conventional approaches tend to render invisible the racist history of marriage itself. Further, the the, uh, adaptive strategies for dealing with omnipresent white supremacy and patriarchy have been largely ignored in conventional research. All right. So I know that was a lot. And uh, I was going to intersperse some of my comments as we went through that, but I felt it would be more effective to get through the author's ideas in total and then provide my commentary. So here's my commentary. First, what the author is saying is that race as a biological subspecies is not real. And the author acknowledges that most scientists researching disparities in family structure between black and white confirm this fact. But because they take a micro rather than a macro view of the issues, they view the circumstances of individual black people to be indicative of the problems rather than looking at the larger impact of systemic racism. The author says that when they view it from their perspective, from the individual perspective, it leads to three errors. Number one, it actually confirms the false notion of race as a biological phenomena. By only looking at individual behaviors rather than external causes of these behaviors, it leads to the erroneous conclusion that all black people do this or that thing. And so it makes it makes race, even though they acknowledge it is not a real from a biological perspective, they say because it is real from a cultural perspective, it it means that black people need to change and that it, they are the problem rather than racism being the problem. Number two, the second error is that it treats racism as episodic rather than systemic and therefore only looks to the past for causes. The underlying message is that racism happened in the past and it is now time for black people to just fucking get over it. That is what the scientific racist scientific research says, that all of our disparities, whether it be family related, as it's referred to in this article, or the wage wealth gap or any in our disparities in health outcomes, etc. These this erroneous pseudoscientific approach seems to say that it is all all of the racism was based in the past. And so now that there isn't any racism, the racism is no longer a cause for those disparities. And the last number three issue is that because racism is looked at as a thing in the past, any disparities are viewed as the fault of the group that is underperforming. So the idea is that, quote, now that racism has been dealt with is up to the individual to reach their highest potential. And if they don't, that's their fault, end quote. 
So how does this all work then? So the author then presents a graphic in their paper, um, and it's a, a model under a section titled Charting the Path for Forward, Racism and the Mechanisms Maintaining Racial Stratification in Black Families. And the model basically depicts three fan, uh, panels. Panel one is the making of racial, racial stratification. And essentially what it says is that racism impacts ideology in, in the community. And it also, racism also impacts the structure with which, uh, or which, which the government, the state and other organizations, uh, justice system, et cetera, operate. So racism impacts the ideology, the way people think, and it, impacts the structures that are set up. This creates racialized groups. And also the structure and the ideology uh, support one another and they build on each other over time. And by racialized groups, that is the dichotomization of the population to say that these people are others. So there's the white race and everybody else. And then there are in everybody else, there's closer to the white race, everybody else, and further away from the uh, white group, everybody else, which is black people. And so that's panel A. Panel B is the maintenance of racial stratification. So basically what it says is that there are individual level characteristics, like what he had talked about before, and then state level structural racism, and then spatial inequality. And so essentially what it's talking about um, is, is that the individual characteristics of, for example, the, the, the black group where, and then uh, the state level structural racism and systemic uh, oppression, along with grouping individuals into uh, a, a, ge- a geography like the ghetto to say that all of these things uh, combine together to maintain racial stratification, to separate black people from white people in things like wage and health uh, and wealth and health uh, outcomes, etc. And this leads to racial inequality. So that, and that is panel C, the manifestation of racial stratification. That is the, the impact then of all of this is to separate groups by race and to provide some with benefits and to take benefits away from another. So, uh, let, let's go through this then again. I've explained to you what panel A and B and C are. Now, let me give you my view of them. So to me, panel A shows how racial stratification is created. That is how black people are otherized. It shows that systemic racism impacts both ideology, which is beliefs, and the structure, which is laws, politics, the justice system, etc. And both beliefs and structure build on each other over time and produce racialized groups. This grouping at a base level imbues black people with racial inferiority and white people with racial superiority. The thoughts of both groups are contaminated by this and so, and, and also, but there are, are contaminated by both the ideology and the supporting structure of society. And that is set up to perpetuate this state of perpetual imbalance. All right. And panel B, uh, basically, like I said, panel B, uh, presents the three sets of mechanisms that maintain racial stratification. That is individual characteristics, uh, state level structural racism, and spatial inequality. The mechanisms of maintaining racial stratification not only reflect racism, but also contribute to the stability of racial variations in the outcome of interest. For example, 
the Arthur was talking about families and like if I were examining what is the the wealth gap, what is causing the wealth gap. And so, again, the mechanisms maintaining that racial uh, diversification or breakup, uh, it not only reflects racism, but it, it is also it contributes to the stability or the perpetuation of those differences. Now, the Arthur states that in the past, the emphasis was placed on the individual level characteristics and states. And I uh, argue scholar and, and the Arthur states, quote, I argue scholars should recast individual characteristics, for example, family structure, education, employment, end quote, as mechanisms maintaining and in some cases exacerbating racial stratification. In other words, individual level, char- level characteristics provide different differential returns based on racialized groups, end quote. So in other words, the racial disparities at the individual level are symptoms of systemic racism, not the drivers of it. Focusing on individuals allows for the oppressor group to blame the victim for their problems. For an example, an individual black man that is undereducated uh, and is a past felon is looked at as being indicative of why there is a wage and wealth gap between black and white men. But no thought is given as to the overarching cause of the undereducation and overincarceration, which is systemic racism. Going on with what the Arthur had to say about this, they they said the conceptual model also includes state level structural racism as a mechanism maintaining racial stratification. The Arthur equates state level characteristics to structural racism and defines it as, quote, the macro level system, social forces, institutions, ideologies and processes that interact with one another to generate and reinforce inequality among racial and ethnic groups, end quote. And continues by saying, quote, as such, states serve as mechanisms for producing, maintaining and perpetuating racial stratification. Drawing on previous research, I, the Arthur, conceptualizes states as racialized institutional actors. From this perspective, the conceptual conceptualization of the state as a radicalized institutional actors highlights A, the concentration of power among white Americans, B, the tacit effects of white logic, and C, the legal conventions that preclude racial equality. So in other words, uh, it is the disparate power structure, the complicity of thought by those in the majority oppressor group, and the structure that they put in place that perpetuates and maintains the otherization of people of color and exacerbates the structure and processes that lead to the continuation of racial disparities. Lastly, on panel B, uh, it includes spatial inequality, which the author says is, quote, a mechanism that maintains racial stratification. Spatial inequality refers to the unequal resources and services across different geographical locations, for example, neighborhood and school quality. Most scholars on race and spatial inequality focus on racial residential segregation. All this li- although this line of research is important to racial stratification, I, again, the author, uh, suggest a more nuanced approach by drawing attention to, quote, space place, end quote, because racial geographies, A, reinforce race making process, B, legitimize and justify persistent racial in- in- inequity, and C, concentrate valued resources with the dominant group. 
So what the author is specifically talking about is the perception of black residential areas as ghettos. But it goes beyond that. Spatial, in this sense, uh, is being used as a mechanism of racial disparity, including everything that is considered black. Black music, black style, black art are all viewed from the perspective of the oppressor group as being inherently valueless. An example of this is African art. It is designated to be crude and, quote, primitive, end quote, while at the same time, whites buy it all and price the creators of that art and other members of the creator class out of the market. Now, the author notes how racism impacts ideology uh, and structure over time and how that creates racialized groups and how individual expression within the racialized groups combined with structural racism and spatial inequality leads to racial uh, inequality uh, or the perpetuation of racial inequality. And then the system turns back on itself exacerbating racism again, that is the, the, the racism which started the whole process, it, it is reinforced by that racial inequality, uh, and then the racism ideology and the structure is reinforced. This is a never-ending vicious cycle. Thus, like a black hole, once created, racism is self-perpetuating and it is permanent. Though over time, the look will change to accommodate changes in society, the racism will always produce racialized groups by combining a biased ideology with a structure of oppression. So does this mean that we should stop fighting? No, it doesn't. Going back to the analogy of the black hole, if we are outside the event horizon, we can theoretically prevent further mass from moving beyond the boundary to the event horizon and thus prevent the black hole from growing. If it's not growing, the black hole can theoretically die. And here's another quote from Space.com. Quote, Hawking used the language of quantum mechanics to explore what happens near the boundary of a black hole known as the event horizon. He found that surprisingly, a strange interaction between the quantum fields of our universe and the one-way barrier of the event horizon allowed a pathway for energy to escape the black hole. This energy takes the form of a slow but steady stream of radiation and particles that come to be known as Hawking radiation. With every bit of energy that escapes, the black hole loses mass and thereby shrinks, eventually popping out of existence altogether, end quote. For this analogy, we can apply counterpressure to the three panels that we discussed earlier, and we can start to kill structural racism. This will require that we combat false ideologies about race and dismantle, and that is radically change, the supporting structure. This will start the process of deracialization over time. Once that happens, the individual state level and spatial characteristics of oppression will start to diminish, which ultimately will lead to a reduction and eventually the elimination of racial inequality. It won't be easy. And it will not happen overnight or even in our lifetimes, but it can be done. All right. That is it for this week's segment of What's On My Mind. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get to the news. back and welcome to the news. And like I said in the intro, this is almost an entire uh, Supreme Court episode in the news this week. So first up in the news, the court sides with racists. What else is new? 
So in a ruling that was not a surprise to anyone, the U.S. Supreme Court ended a decades-old precedent of remediating the impact of hundreds of years of discrimination uh, by taking race into account in college admissions. The majority opinion was written by Judge Roberts and Clarence Thomas, um, uh, the fucking uh, uh, step-and-fetch-it of the Supreme Court, uh, wrote a gleeful but completely incoherent concurrence. And Judge Katanji Brown wrote a brilliant dissent that specifically called out Thomas's self-hatred and dim-wittedness, but alas, affirmative action is another right that our future generations will not have. So here is an article from the Daily Beast uh, that tangentially discusses the ruling. Uh, Quote, following the Supreme Court decision on Thursday to gut college-based affirmative action, the views will be Goldberg tore into Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas saying he's, quote, full of it, end quote, for claiming he, quote, doesn't know what diversity is, end quote. In a landmark ruling that will likely impact affirmative action policies across the United States, the high court ruled by a 6-3 conservative majority that universities could no longer consider race as a factor in admissions. According to the court, race-based admission policies violate equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment, which is fucking stupid. And um, Ellie Mistow uh, dismantled that argument, but I'm not going to talk about that this week. So going on, in his concurrent, uh, concurring opinion, Thomas, and the article says who is black, uh, I beg to differ, but okay, blasted fellow African-American Justice Katanji Brown Jackson's dissent, in which he called the ruling a, quote, let them eat cake obliviousness, end quote, from a majority that, quote, pulls the ripcord and announces colored blindness for all by legal fiat, end quote. Thomas, saying he, quote, strongly disagrees with Jackson, argued that colorblindness was actually the whole point. As she sees things, we are all inextricably trapped in a fundamental racist society with the original sin of slavery and historical subjugation of black Africans uh, or black Americans still determining our lives today, end quote, uh, Clarence, idiot, dim-witted motherfucker Thomas wrote. Now, this inane language from Thomas shows how utterly clueless he is. Of course, slavery is still impacting the lives of black Americans today because the underlying animosity that energized white supremacist ideology and provides legitimacy to the underlying structural systemic uh, oppression still exists in its original form. Justice Brown is correct. You cannot merely say, quote, from now on, race doesn't matter, end quote, when for 400 fucking years it did. You cannot amass massive privileges based on oppression and, and for and massive privilege for white people based on oppressing black people and then say, quote, it's every man for himself, end quote. Justice Thomas wants to codify white privilege and leave people of color at the bottom of the barrel. This is even though without affirmative action, Thomas's dumb ass would have never gotten into Yale. All right, uh, going back to the article, during the court's arguments in the uh, case last year, Thomas also questioned the actual definition of diversity, saying, quote, I don't have a clue what it means, end quote. On Thursday, Goldberg didn't hold back in unleashing um, on the conservative jurist, quote, he doesn't know what diversity is. That is what he said. So he doesn't get it, end quote. She exclaimed, Quote, well, let me uh, pose this question to you, Justice Thomas. Could your mother and father vote in this country? End quote. Goldberg rhetorically asked. 
quote, because had the 14th Amendment actually had us on equal footing, they would have been able to vote. And you know why that changed? Because people got out and made a change. If we didn't, no one would do it, end quote. And Whoopi is right. And I don't always agree with her. But in this case, she's absolutely right. Thomas also said that the quote that he hope quote hopes that America will live up to the ideals expressed in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. But when those documents were written, black people were enslaved. Thomas's court ruling is living up to those ideals because even when they were fucking written, they did not apply to black people. No one it went, who wrote the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution expected black people to get a goddamn thing. And that is what Justice Thomas is trying to codify. All right, let's go on to the next story. And this is the court also sides with white Christian nationalists. So the decision ending affirmative action was not the only case that the SCOTUS decided incorrectly this week, in my opinion. They also decided decided that a lazy-ass motherfucker can take off work as long as he says it is because he's a white Christian nationalist. In some ways, I think this decision is even more egregious uh, than the affirmative action uh, ruling because this one was decided unanimously. That shows that in the case of religion versus the truth and fairness, the entire fucking court is on the side of religion. The, so here's the here's the story. Quote, the Supreme Court broadened protections on Thursday for religious workers in a case that involved a mail carrier for the U.S. Postal Service who refused to work on his Sabbath. In a unanimous decision, the justices rejected a test that had long been used to determine what accommodations an employer must make for religious workers, but declined to rule on the merits of the case, sending it back to the lower court to consider under a, a to consider it under a new standard. Writing for the court, Justice Samuel Alito Jr. said that the case gave it the quote first opportunity in nearly fifty years end quote to explain the nuances of how workplaces must adapt to religious requests by employees. For an employer to deny an employee's request for religious accommodation, Justice Alito wrote, it, quote, must show that the burden of granting an accommodation would result in substantial increased cost in relation to the conduct of his particular, or the, con- or the conduct of his particular business, end quote. And that decision could affect countless workplaces and could require many employers to make substantial changes to accommodate religious workers. So first off, why? Why the fuck should an employer have to show that not accommodating some asshole superstition would uh, it would increase its cost? Most states are right to work, which me actually means that they have the right to fire you and you can be fired for fucking anything. So if a person doesn't want to work on the days that the business is open, why should they the, the business be forced to accommodate that request? But secondly, this is only for Christians. You can bet if a Muslim asked to have three hours or more off each day to accommodate their daily prayers, the courts would rule against them. Uh, if some pagan said that they needed uh, to have a day off to sacrifice a chicken uh, or, or something like that, they would not be allowed. And if a Wiccan said they needed off work on days to cast spells, they would not be allowed either. This is just a fucking white Christian nationalist accommodation. Nobody else is going to get it. All right, let's go on to the next story, which I'm just titling this one. It's all SCOTUS this week. 
So in another pathetic ruling, the lunatic majority of the Supreme Court ruled that any business can deny services to members of the LGBTQAI community, and in fact, they can deny service to any group that they don't like, even if that group is a protected class. Businesses can now deny services to gays, blacks, atheists, tall people, short people, or whatever the fuck because the Supreme Court of the United States is filled with ignorant buffoons that do not know their ass from a motherfucking hole in the ground. So here's the story from the Associated Press. Quote, in a defeat for gay rights, the Supreme Court's conservative majority ruled Friday that Christian graphic artists who wants to design wedding websites can refuse to work with same-sex couples. The court ruled 6-3, again, all of the racist Republican assholes against the three Democrats, uh, for they ruled in favor of designer Lori Smith, despite a Colorado law that bars discrimination based on sexual orientation, race, gender, and other characteristics. Smith had argued that the law violates her free speech rights. Smith's opponents warned that a win for her would allow a range of businesses to discriminate, refusing to serve black, Jewish, or Muslim customers, interracial or interfaith couples, or immigrants. But Smith and her supporters had said that a ruling against her would force artists, from painters and photographers to writers and musicians, to do work that is against their beliefs. Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote a dissent that was joined by the court's other liberals in saying, quote, today the court for the first time in its history grants a business open to the public a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class, end quote. What you may not know about that ruling, though, is that unlike the stupid ass uh, cake shop case, no one in the gay community asked this ugly ass sack of shit to design a website. She wanted to post in her advertisement that no no gays allowed. She wanted to put in her ads that no gay people should ask her to do a website. Not that any did, but she just wanted to be able to say that no gays allowed. And that is what the court granted. Now with this law, how long do you think it's going to be before you see no blacks allowed, no Jews allowed, or no whatever the fuck these idiot ass motherfuckers want to say that they discriminate against are not allowed? These signs are going to go up everywhere. So the idiot justices on the insurrectionist right claim that the ruling confirmed that, quote, all persons are free to think and speak as they wish, not as the government demands, end quote. But that is not the case. She was always free to say and think whatever fucking stupid ass shit she wanted to. But she was not allowed to 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 deny service to the public uh, to or, or provide public uh, so, uh, service to the public and then say which members of the public she would and would not serve. She was not allowed before this ruling to put a sign that said no blacks need apply. But now she can. How is this any fucking different than segregated lunch counters? How is it any different than forcing black people to sit at the back of the bus or to stand up if a white person needed a seat? We are truly making America something again. It's not fucking great, but we're definitely going back in time. All right, let's go on to the next story. And this one I'm just calling Let Them Eat Cake. So in her dissent to the ruling ending affirmative action, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson said that the right wing mob in the court had a, quote, let them eat cake uh, attitude about about black Americans. And she was right. Uh, and in this next ruling, they continue with that attitude. But before we get to that, I want to explain what let them eat cake actually is. So 
let them eat cake is a is the traditional translation of the French phrase, which I'm not going to pronounce correctly, uh, but it is the French phrase Quillis Magnanta de la Brocia, end quote. And it's said to have been spoken by the in eight, in the 18th century by quote a great princess. Uh, some say it was Marie Antoinette, but that's not necessarily definite. But a, a great princess, and she said that upon being told that the peasants had no bread. So the French phrase mentions brioche, which is a bread enriched with butter and eggs, and it's considered to be a luxury food. So the quote is taken to reflect either the princess's uh, frivolous disregard for the starving peasants or her poor understanding of their plight. So it is a derogatory term to say that you are you either uh, don't care or don't know about uh, someone suffering. And so here's the article. So the court also struck down Biden's student loan forgiveness program and basically said, let the debtors eat fucking cake. So here's the story from the story from Routers. Quote, the U.S. Supreme Court handed President Joe Biden Biden a painful defeat on Friday, blocking his plan to cancel $430 billion in student loan debt, a move that had been intended to benefit up to 43 million Americans and fulfill a campaign promises, a campaign promise. The justices ruled against Biden in a 6-3 decision. Again, idiots versus three mostly reasonable people, even though those three reasonable, pe- reasonable people fucked up in the Christian case. But in this decision favoring the six conservative-leaning states that objected to the policy, the court's action dealt a blow to the 26 million U.S. borrowers who had applied for relief after Biden announced the plan in August of 2022 and a political setback for the Democratic president. Some 53% of Americans said they supported Biden's debt debt relief plan, with 45% opposed, according to a a Reuters uh, Ipsos poll from March with respondents divided sharply along partisan lines with Democrats broadly supporting uh, and Republicans generally opposed. And to me, Republicans continue their approach to vote against their own self-interest, as many of them would have benefited from this plan. We are at a point in time where the court will rule to take away rights and not give a fucking inch when someone is trying to give people relief. We need to vote out the Republicans and change the motherfucking court. All right, let's go on to the next and last story for the news this week. And I'm calling this story The Value of Life. And this last story is the only one that is not SCOTUS-related. Uh, and this is a story actually from last week, not this week. And it, and it examines um, which lives the world deems valuable and which it deems expendable. And so here's a story from the New York Times. And the headline of that story in the New York Times was Five Deaths at Sea Gripped the World. Hundreds of others got a shrug. So here's the story. Quote, on, a, on one vessel, five people died on a very expensive excursion uh, that was supposed to return them to the lives they knew. On the other, perhaps 500 people died just days earlier on a squalid and perilous voyage, fleeing poverty and violence in search of new lives. After uh, contact was lost with the five inside the submersible descending to the Titanic, Multiple countries and private entities sent ships, planes, and underwater drones to pursue a faint hope of rescue. That was far more effort than was made on behalf of the hundreds aboard a dangerously overcrowded, disabled fishing trawler off the Greek coast while there were still ample chances for rescue. And 
It was the law submersible, submersible, the Titan, that drew enormous attention from news organizations worldwide and their audiences far more than the boat that sank in the Mediterranean and the Greek Coast Guard's failure to help before it capsized. So much of the outrage of this discrepancy in the way these two incidents were treated has been related to the uh, wealth of the submersible passengers. They each paid 250000 for the trip, and they signed waivers acknowledging that they could die. The meme, Eat the Rich, was trending uh, when that was going on, which is synonymous with, quote, fuck the rich, end quote. And part of the reason that uh, that class rather than color is being used as a lens for this situ- these two situations is because two of the passengers on board the submersible were Pakistani, a billionaire father and his son. So the passengers on the boat that sank were Syrian, Pakistani, and Egyptian. So Pakistanis on the, uh, there were two Pakistanis on the submersible and Pakistanis on the boat that sank or capsized. But this is still, in my opinion, a color issue. It's still a racism issue. It is based upon racism and white supremacy. White supremacy is not about bifurcating humanity. It is, it is, or it is not about only bifurcating humanity. It's about putting all people on a continuum. And one of the differentiators on that continue, continuum is wealth. So sure, the line is white people on one side and black people on the other side. And white people are, are the ones that are considered to be good and black people are considered to be bad. And all the other ethnicities are put in between that line. But wealth also moves you up or down the line. Poor white people are above middle class blacks, but not they're not above super rich blacks. Oprah is ahead of the average white person. So a billionaire Pakistani is closer to white in the convoluted structure of white supremacy. Yes, class is an aggravating or mitigating factor, but the underlying issue that caused such a different response to these incidents was racism. All right, that is it for the news this week. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will get to the segment. This shit is for us. Welcome back and welcome to the segment This Is For Us, where each week I, a black man, provide information intended for my black brothers and sisters. The title of the segment this week is Ultimately It's Always Personal. Now, I could have gone through the topic of um, this week's What's On My Mind segment in this segment of This Shit Is For Us, but the content, um, though relevant for black people, I think was also uh, directed or should be directed to all others, and since it was about systemic racism and how it impacts our lives. But I want to continue with the theme uh, from the What's On My Mind segment here by talking about personal versus collective activism. So we have learned, and I am beginning to feel, that racism and its associated oppression is permanent. At least it will be so long uh, lived that it will not end in my lifetime nor in the next. But that doesn't mean that we don't fight. We fight because both the small wins that we can achieve 
uh, and uh, that there are small wins that we can achieve and also because we lessen the burden to be carried by those that come after us. And the small wins can be both personal, that is your own personal success in the world, uh, and it can be collective, which is the diminishment of the impact of racism on us all. So let's analyze what we can do as individuals and what must be done as a collective. So I'm going to start with individual action because, in my opinion, it is a necessary prerequisite to collective action. Even if one perceives change to be too large to be accomplished by a single individual, it is still necessary to first perceive that there is a problem and to personally want to do something about it. As an example, early in my life, I was able to perceive that the level of personal achievement that I could obtain was weighted down by white supremacy-based oppression. I recognized that this would not only limit me, but that it would also limit those that look like me. That being the case, I knew that the impact of that oppression would vary, and therefore the level of achievement for an individual in the black community would not be uniform. I was determined to limit the impacts of racial oppression on me, uh, but when in my teens, I did not at, at the time see the necessity to fight for collective justice. It took some time for me to internalize the cliche that a rising tide rises all ships, end quote, and to realize that a general expansion of opportunities in the black community would also benefit me as an individual. I had to first believe that I, as an individual, um, could make a change for myself, and then um, that I, as an individual, uh, could make a change for my community before I could get to the point of believing that I, in concert with others, uh, could make a bigger difference for us all. Now, uh, in this week's segment of This Chance for Us, I again use ChatGPT to provide a list of some personal activities that you can take to minimize the impact of racial oppression. And so I do not believe that it is possible through individual action alone to eliminate the impact of, uh, of racism uh, on us all, but it can be, be minimized. And so I'll comment on each one of the ChatGPT suggestions. Uh, since uh, I have found um, that when using ChatGPT, it's very important to verify and uh, review what they what uh, that AI suggests. But here's the suggestions. Number one is to educate yourself. Of course, with the ruling from the Supreme Court, that's going to be more difficult now uh, if you want to get into certain schools. But learn about his, the history of racism, uh, ChatGPT said. Uh, and its impact on society. Educate yourself about the Black history, civil rights movements, the experience of Black individuals. This knowledge can empower you and help you to better navigate instances of racism. Now, for me, I have spoken on this topic multiple times. This is about self-definition. It is based that, that is based on truth. We need to know our history, the good, the bad, the indifferent, and we need to know the positive impact that we have had on the world. Number two is to build a support network. Surround yourself with supportive friends, family, and community members who understand and acknowledge the challenges you face. Connect with individuals who share similar experiences and can provide emotional support. This is not so much about joining an organization uh, than it is fighting for social or uh, joining an organization that is fighting for social justice 
uh, it would, it is more about being a part of a collective action. This is about surrounding yourself with people that understand what you're going through and support uh, your desire for positive change. So this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be involved in a group that is fighting for uh, for justice, but just the group that supports you. As an example, I was a member of a black study group uh, that provided that kind of camaraderie for me. All right, suggestion number three is practice self-care. Prioritize your mental, emotional, and physical well-being. Engage in activities that help you relax, de-stress, and recharge. And this might include exercise, mindfulness, or hobbies, or spending time in nature. And to me, to combat racism, even on the personal level, requires that we be free from disease. We need to take care of our bodies, minds, and emotions if we are to be resilient in the face of oppression. Let's move on to suggestion four, which is to seek therapy or counseling. Consider working with a therapist or a counselor who specializes in in racial trauma or multicultural counseling. They can provide a safe space to process your experiences, developing coping strategies, and explore ways to navigate racism. And to me, this is optional, but it is a big help. Um, If you feel that you need it, uh, I would definitely recommend seeing a therapist. I see a therapist and it has made a big positive difference in my life. All right, number five is empower yourself through knowledge and skills. Acquire knowledge and skills that can help you to excel personally and professionally. Education, career development, and honing your skills can increase your resilience and provide opportunities to overcome obstacles. And as I have said recently, the person with the most flexibility usually wins. If you take on the persona of a continuous learner, you will always have knowledge that is in demand in the market, which means you will have options and options limit the impact of oppression. At one point in my career, I was the best in the world at what I did, and therefore I had total career security. I knew at that time that even if my employer let me go, there would be dozens of other companies that would hire me in a heartbeat. Number six is to engage in self-advocacy. Stand up for yourself and assert your rights when faced with racism. Communicate clearly and assertively. Educate others about the impact of their actions and seek appropriate recourse when necessary. Now, for me, it is necessary that you be careful with this. Certainly stand up for yourself in all cases, but the way you do needs to change with the circumstances. If you find yourself, for example, surrounded by a racist skinhead mob, I do not think that that's the time to start a fight you cannot win. As the saying goes, quote, he who fights and runs away lives to fight another day, end quote. And I would say on another day when the odds are more in your favor. So certainly stand up for yourself, but make sure that you do it um, uh, in a uh, uh, effective and safe way. Number seven is get involved in activism and and advocacy, participate in community initiatives, organizations, or movements dedicated to fighting racism. By actively engaging in advocacy work, you can contribute to systemic change and promote equality. Now, to me, this is collective, not personal action. It is personal in a sense, though, um, which we'll talk about uh, collective action more later Uh, But certainly, as I had said before, uh, even when you are involved in something in a group, it still takes that personal initiative to see that you can make a difference by joining that group. So that's still a a personal action you can take. 
Number eight is to maintain your cultural pride, celebrate your cultural heritage, and maintain a strong sense of identity. Surround yourself with positive representations of black culture and engage in activities that uh, celebrate your roots. Find ways to celebrate all black holidays and celebrate all black heroes that you can. Um, and I think that that's everything from Afrocentric clothing uh, to take on uh, to taking on an Afrocentric aesthetic. For example, uh, in my house, I have a lot of African art and uh, art by uh, black uh, artists. And number nine is to seek uh, legal support if needed. And this is the last suggestion. And the and Chad GPT said, if you experience racial discrimination or injustice, consider seeking legal support. Consult with a lawyer who specializes in civil rights or discrimination cases to explore your options. Now, there are some situations where this is necessary and the law, but the laws are anemic. And, um, but if those laws are broken, you do have a right and an obligation to pursue some personal justice. I wouldn't count on that being successful very often, but certainly, uh, if you have been uh, if you have experienced uh, the impact of racial oppression uh, in a, and it, it has broken uh, the law, then you should seek uh, remediation. So Ted GPT closed with this, quote, remember the impact of racism is systemic and addressing it requires collective effort. Engaging in these individual actions can help minimize the impact on a personal level, but is equally important to work towards broader societal change by supporting initiatives and movements dedicated to dismantling racism, end quote, which takes us from, uh, uh, or which takes us from individual activi- activism to collective activism. So rather than get into the details of the types of collective action that you can take, since that will depend on what group or organization you decide to join, I want to talk about the process of moving from individual to collective action. And I'm going to use a scholarly article to frame the discussion. Now, this is from the front, from a, the, the site Frontiers in Psychology, and the paper is titled Move by Social Justice, the Role of Kamamuta in Collective Action Toward Racial Equality, end quote. And I'll explain Kamamuta in a moment. And the paper, uh, by the way, was written by Diana M. Lazaro Perez, Perezia, uh, at all. There were, uh, three authors. All right. So let's, uh, go ahead and get to the paper. The paper starts with this definition of its origins, quote, Participation in collective action is known to be driven by two appraisals of social situation. Beliefs that's, that a situation is unfair, that is injustice appraisal, and beliefs that a, a group can change the situation, which is collective efficacy appraisal, end quote. Anger has been repeatedly found to mediate the relationship between injustice appraisals and collective action. Recent work suggests that the emotion of being moved mediates the relationship between efficacy appraisal and collective action. Building on prior work, the present research paper applies Kamamuta theory to further investigate the relationship between the efficacy appraisal and collective action. And Kamamuta is a positive emotion that is evoked by a sudden intensification of communal sharing and largely overlaps with the English concept of being moved. So the bottom line is this. The author, what the authors are saying is that 
for an individual to go from taking uh, individual active action to collective action to fight for social justice, two things are required. The first is an assessment that there is, in fact, injustice. If you don't believe there's injustice, then you won't do anything. Uh, Clarence Thomas and, and Tim Scott don't believe there's any injustice to fight. So, of course, they don't fucking do a goddamn thing. So that's the first of the two things is an assessment that there is, in fact, injustice. And number two is that group action can right the situation. So the authors are saying that anger, uh, that is when you are outraged, that that is an, that is often a catalyst to get an individual from the point of recognizing injustice to doing something about it, but that a sense of being touched emotionally, that is by being moved, can also provide a catalyst. As anger can only take us so far and provides a limited direction, uh, for example, if you're angry, most of the choices that you'll make on what uh, groups that you will join will also have an anger-based perspective and probably include some form of agitation, if not full-blown violence. But being moved into action rather than being motivated by anger would give you more options. So let's continue with the paper. Quote, Black people and other racial ethnic minorities have raised their voices to condemn the systemic racism that affects them on a daily basis. Collective action is defined as an action taken by a group of individuals to achieve a common goal. Different behaviors such as participation in demonstration, signing petitions, or donating can be categorized as effective or as collective actions. They can also include unlawful, uh, nonviolent, or even violent actions. Collective actions depend on at least three different variables, identity, perceived unfairness, and perceived efficacy. Theorizing of such processes is grounded in classic theories of social identity and relative deprivation. According to the social identity model of, a co of collective action, SIMCA, Social identity predicts collective action directly and also indirectly through unfairness perceptions and efficacy beliefs. Similarly, the encapsulated model of collection action, EMSICA, considers injustice and efficacy as predictors of collective action and points out social identification as a mediator in these assessments or associations rather. A later model distinguishes two different paths for collective action and includes an emotional component explicitly. The dynamic dual path model suggests that collective action is, is a strategy disadvantaged groups under certain circumstances used to cope with their disadvantage through two approaches. The first one is described as an emotion-focused path that places anger as a critical element. The second path relates to a problem-focused approach characterized by efficacy beliefs. Likewise, a recent extension of SIMCA considers the volition of moral beliefs and politicized identity as essential motiva motivation to engage in collective action mediation through group-based anger and group efficacy beliefs, respectively. All these models have in common that they distinguish between emotional path mediated by anger and a non-emotional path mediated by efficacy. So to make it plain, what this is saying is that black people get together with other blacks to fight injustice after they have perceived that in that injustice, either because they are angry or that because they believe that joining forces would be more efficacious than fighting as an individual. 
And going back to the article, recent contributions elaborate on this approach by suggesting that emotions can be mediators in both paths, uh, both paths. That is, whether or not uh, it is a path based upon anger or a path based upon believing that um, uh, that as a group you can be more effective than as an individual. For instance, the social identity model of pro-environmental action acknowledges that various emotions may determine goals and actions. Further, some research uh, proposes that uh, proposes that similarly to the mediating the role of anger in the path of injustice to collective action, the relationship be between collective efficacy and collective action may be mediated through emotions, suggesting hope and the feeling of being moved as mediators. So in other words, some of the studies have shown that rather than being motivated only by anger, or the potential uh, effectiveness of getting together, individuals can be moved to collective action if they perceive hope in acting collectively, or if they are moved uh, by the plight of those uh, of a disadvantaged group by selfless effort uh, of some of the members to fight for the disadvantaged group. And I think, for example, Amanda Gorman's poetry is the type of thing that um, uses um, the being being moved uh, by love to inspire uh, others to take action. Whether the aim is to change or defend the status quo, uh, identity and perception of justice are important predictors of collective action. Relative deprivation theory, RDT, is widely used to explain the involvement of disadvantaged groups in collective action. RDT proposes that compare uh, proposes that comparison with other groups and the subsequent perception of injustice injustice could result in feelings of group deprivation that motivate collective action. New approaches extend the relevance of perception of injustice to broader category of violation of moral beliefs. So an example of the former would be an awareness of the wage wealth gap between black and white people. Black people that perceive this imbalance would naturally feel unfairly disadvantaged and would therefore be more likely to join forces to combat this injustice. But even if a person did not perceive the wealth, their wage wealth gap, they could still be motivated to, to action based on their perception of unfair moral action. That is the negative comments about black people in general that are not necessarily related to a concrete instance of injustice. And that would be like if someone, if someone was around some white people that were making racial jokes. Uh, they could be moved by the dis, the the the, depar- uh, the 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 nastiness of that uh, to uh, to be able to support um, uh, black movements. Continuing with the paper, uh, re- recent research investigated for the first time the role of being moved in uh, collective action. So Landman and and Roman uh, argued that quote people may be moved and positively overwhelmed by the idea that they can collectively change something, and these feelings of being moved may in turn motivate collective action, end quote. Thus, in their research, Landman and Roman uh, challenged the notion that anger, or the more general moral outrage, would be the only emotion involved in collective action. They suggest that experienced collective efficacy causes being moved through a combination of moral closeness and achievement appraisals reinforcing various theoretical perspectives of being moved. Consider a typical measurement item for collective efficacy. Quote, I think that together we can change the group-related problem. So, uh, for example, like um, the wage wealth gap. 
While previous conceptualizations, the paper says, put the focus on the can-change aspect of it or efficacy, Landman and Rowan proposed emphasizing the together part of the emotional impact experiencing uh, togetherness can have. So, so for what I'm talking about, again, the emphasis is less on we can change uh, to the part that minimizes, uh, uh, for example, we can change minimizing the impact of racial uh, oppression, but we can emphasize the together part that we can change and minimize the impact of racial oppression. Togetherness is more than just a focus on the uh, the more the mightier kind of concept. It is about a oneness of mind and emotion. If we feel that we are in the same boat as others and our survival depends on one another, that is a more powerful motivator than anger. And it is more powerful than just feeling that the numbers, if we have the numbers, then we can make a change. Now, the article placed more focus on advantage groups being motivated against their own self-interest to advocate for the disadvantaged groups, but I don't think we really can depend on that for two reasons. And the first reason is that white privilege is closely associated with white white fragility, and a majority of whites will never concede that their success relative to the black race is based on racism. And the second reason is because almost every instance of black progress, no matter how minimal, is quickly eroded by white black backlash uh, to that progress. Now, the paper uses the BLM organization's gains after the murder of George Floyd as the basis for their assertions. But white support for BLM is already eroded to a lower level than it was before George Floyd was murdered. So we must move from individual to collective action using love that is being moved emotionally as a catalyst to, to, to make that jump gives us more options than if we only use anger. But anger is still valid and we should use anger, but we should also be motivated by and be moved uh, to, to collective action. We must no, not rely on others to support us in that journey. We will take support when it is sincerely offered, but we will not depend on others being moved by our plight for us to take action. We will act both individually and collectively to make change, and we will sustain that effort over as many generations as necessary to make the changes we want to see. All right, that is it for this week's segment of This Shit Is For Us. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, there will be a a Bible study with Atheist Mike. to Bible Study with Atheist Mike. And this week, uh, our Bible lesson is about uh, Catholic uh, versus Protestant. So both Catholics and Protestants are Christians, except when they are uh, fighting people like me, uh, except for when they are uh, fighting people like me, they hate each other. But what is the fundamental difference between the two groups and why do they believe that the other to be ungodly? Now, I started thinking about this topic after watching the series The Tudors, which depicted the life of Henry VIII. King Henry, whose cousin was King James, was an obvious immoral man, but he is the one that caused England to abandon the Catholic faith and embrace the Reformation, albeit a watered-down version. Though 
through King uh, Henry VIII's efforts, England denied the validity of the Pope. Uh, he also burned more heretics than anyone else, uh, even uh, anyone in Catholicism. Both Catholics and Protestants wax eloquently about their love of God, and both was eloquent. Both wax eloquently about how debased and immoral the other is. So let's break down the differences in their beliefs. So revolutionary changes emerged, and this is an article that I'm using to to base this uh, on, and I'll intersperse my comment, comments as we go. So, quote, revolutionary changes emerged in, in uh, Christian Europe during the 16th century. Criticism of church authority and traditions led to the Protestant Reformation that would end the religious unity of Europe and leads to devastating wars between Catholics and Protestants. The Reformation, Reformation would help strengthen the power of secular ru rulers, paving the way for the emergence of the modern nation state. And end quote. So, but this is not really the start of the Christian religion being used to support the state. In 1312 AD, Constantine claimed that he had a dream of a bright cross in the sky with the words, quote, in hoc uh, sinovensis, end quote. In this sign, conquer, end quote. Constantine used this to say that the Christian God was on his side in a war, and he went on to defeat his enemies. At this point, the church was essentially still Catholic, uh, but uh, but the uh, the the but Constantine used it as a base for um, for for waging war. So going back to the article, by 15, the 1500s, uh, many forces had weakened the power of the Catholic Church. The most important of these forces were the new ideas of the Renaissance, the new technology of the printing press, and the increasing skepticism of church, church authority generated uh, from events such as the Great Skiism and the Black Death. There was also a growing awareness of widespread corruption uh, within the church. Many entered the clergy to gain power and wealth rather than because of faith, which is, of course, the same shit that happens today. The papacy experienced a growing loss of spiritual influence as the Pope and members of the church hierarchy acted more like secular princes than spiritual leaders. Church leaders were slow to respond for calls uh, for reform. And so it, it mentions the great um, uh, skiism there, and uh, that is about uh, an incident that happened on July 16, 15, or, or 1054, uh, Patriarch Constantinople uh, of Constantinople, Michael Sorelius, was excommunicated, uh, starting uh, the great schism that created the two largest denominations in Christianity, the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox faiths. So that was the great schism. We know what the Black Death was, and of course we know that how technology dismantled the authority of uh, the church. But back to the article, in the early 16th century, the church had fallen into the practice of selling indulgences. Indulgences were pardons from punishment for committing a sin, allowing the sinner to enter heaven. This practice brought in a great deal of revenue for the church. The Pope was using money raised through the sale of indulgences to construct St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Martin Luther and Augustine Monk believed that neither priest nor the Pope had special powers, and he was deeply offended by the selling of indulgences. In 1517, Luther posted 95 theses or statements on a church door in Germany that challenged the Pope's right to sell indulgences. 
Luther's asserted that, quote, those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers, end quote. So Luther's 95 theses were more than just an attack on the selling of indulgences, however. Luther sought instead a full reform of the church, and his teachings uh, rested on three main principles. Number one, that the people uh, could win salvation only by faith in God's gift of forgiveness. The the Catholic Church taught that faith and good works, uh, that is your behavior, practicing the sacraments of the church, etc., were needed for salvation. And which to me is kind of crazy because what what Luther was saying is that is that uh, that acknowledging God and and giving your life to God was the only thing you had to do. You didn't have to live a, a moral life. You didn't have to do shit. Basically, it's just that you had to uh, be forgiven by God, and that was all you needed. So going on, all the the second. Uh, uh, main point of his teachings is that all church teaching should be clearly based on the words of the Bible. So the the Pope the Pope um, and uh, said that that they had their traditions uh, and that they were true, but uh, Luther said that those were false authorities. And number three is that all people with faith were equal; therefore, the people did not be, need priests to interpret the Bible for them. So those were the the three main uh, points uh, of Lutherism. So increasingly, the Pope realized that this monk, i.e. Luther, was a serious threat. In one angry reply to church criticism, Luther actually suggested that Christians drive the Pope from the church by force. In 1520, Pope Leo X issued a decree threatening Luther with excommunication unless he took back his statements. Instead, Luther gathered his students together around a bonfire in Wittenberg, Germany, and threw the Pope's decree into the flames. Leo excommunicated Luther uh, uh, right after that. Luther was then summoned to the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Charles V, uh, a devout Catholic, to stand trial in the uh, trial in the German city of Worms. There he confronted the emperor and other representatives of the German states. When he was told to recant or take back his statement, Luther refused, responding, quote, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Uh, amen. End quote. A month later, uh, Luther made the, a month after Luther made that speech, Charles issued an edict of worms that declared Luther an outlaw and a heretic. Accordingly, no one in the empire was to give Luther food or shelter. All his books were to be burned. Luther, however, would be sheltered and protected within a, a castle by a powerful prince who supported his views. During the year Luther stayed there, he would translate the New Testament into vernacular German. By the time he returned to Wittenberg in 1522, he discovered that many of his ideas were already being put into practice. Priests dressed in ordinary clothes and called themselves ministers. They had services in German instead of Latin, and some ministers had married, a practice not permitted to priests within the Catholic Church. Within the New Testament, uh, with the New Testament now made available in German, each person could now read the Bible on his or her own. His or her own. The reformers uh, became known as Protestants, which just means protest, and many German princes adopted pro Protestantism. 
Eventually, the term Protestant was applied to Christians who belonged to non-Catholic churches uh, rather than just those that were protesting. Uh, and instead of continuing to seek reforms within the Catholic Church, Luther and his followers became a separate religious group and established the Lutheran Church, the first of the Protestant churches that would eventually be established. By 1524, German peasants, excited by Protestant talk of Christian freedom, demanded an end to serfdom. Uh, bands of angry peasants uh, went about the countryside, raiding monasteries, pillaging, and burning. Luther, however, was horrified by the violence incited with the princes who had supported him, urging them to ruthlessly put down the revolt. Though he had attacked the Pope, he supported the secular authority. Uh, as many as 100,000 people were massacred during this event known as the Peasant Revolt. So even though Luther had talked about uh, freedom from the Pope and freedom from the church, it was just the Catholic Church that he wanted freedom from. He still wanted the uh, state sponsors of his church to have power, and therefore he was willing to, to brutally put down those who wanted freedom. So while German princes generally shared Luther's belief, like Luther's, and they liked Luther's ideas, though, for selfish reasons. They saw his ideas as a good uh, excuse to seize church lands and property and to assert their independence from Charles V. In 1529, German princes who remained loyal to the Pope agreed to join forces against Luther's ideas, and Holy Roman Emperor Charles V led a war against the Protestant princes of Germany. Even though he defeated them in 1547, he failed to force them back into the Catholic Church. So he won, but they did not go back to being Catholic. Weary of fighting, Charles ordered all German princes, both Protestant and Catholic, to assemble in the city of Augsburg. At that meeting, it was agreed that the churches in Germany could either be Lutheran or Catholic, but not Calvinist, um, which is a point that we'll talk about later. Furthermore, the prince of every state could decide the religion of his state. So each of the states could determine whether they were going to be Catholic or Lutheran. The, the Peace of Augsburg, 1555, temporarily, temporarily ended religious wars in Germany, though the war would reignite later in the first half of the 17th century during the Thirty Years' War in which Germany would be ravaged. It is estimated that two-thirds of the German population perished or fled Germany during this conflict. Many died to disease and starvation as armies burned and destroyed crops. So while the Catholics and the Protestants fought each other over the continent in England, King Henry VIII had become concerned that his queen, Catherine of Argonne, would not be able to give birth to a male heir. heir. So when the Pope refused uh, King Henry VIII's request to annul the marriage so that he could remarry, Henry broke with the Catholic Church, closed the, the English monasteries, and seized all of the church lands. In 1534, Parliament passed the Act of Supremacy, which declared that the English king, not the Pope, was to be the official head of the English church. To raise money, Henry sold much of the land that he had seized to nobles and members of England's rising middle class. Suddenly, there were many English landowners who stood to lose property if England returned to the Catholic church. This group formed a solid base of support for the Protestant Reformation in England. In most other ways, Henry, though, remained Catholic, more Catholic than Protestant. He insisted that English priests make no changes to the Catholic rituals or doctrines. Henry, therefore, unlike Luther, broke ties with the Roman Catholic Church for political and personal reasons, not religious. That is, 
King Henry VIII did not give a shit about what the uh, the Pope uh, was doing or not doing as it relates to the Bible and people. He was only concerned that he couldn't get a divorce that he wanted so that he could remarry someone else. So in Geneva, Switzerland, John Calvin, um, as I had said, we'd talk about Calvinism later, started a new Protestant church. Calvin taught that since God was all-knowing, it was predestined, that is already decided by God, who would be saved and who would be damned. While faith was the key to salvation, it was God who gave faith to some and denied it to others. Only the elect would be saved. Such ideas encouraged hard work uh, and a strict moral code. In Geneva, worldly success was interpreted as a sign of God's favor. So in other words, like prosperity fucking gospels today. So next we get to the Catholic Counter-Reformation because there was one as a a pushback against the Reformation against uh, the Catholics. So as Protestantism swept across many parts of Europe, the Catholic Church reacted by making limited reforms, curbing earlier abuses and combating the further spread of Protestantism. This movement is known as the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Ignatius Loyola was one such leader of the Catholic Reform. He established a Society of Jesus whose members uh, were commonly called Jesuits who sought to defend and spread the Catholic faith. Stressing absolute discipline, obedience to the Pope, the Jesuits were like a spiritual army. They founded uh, suburb schools throughout Europe, converted non-Christians to Catholicism in Americas and Africa and Asia, and were successful in preventing the further spread of Protestantism in areas such as Baravia and Poland, which remain predominantly Catholic uh, to this day, primarily because of the effort of the Jesuits. In 1545, there, at the request of Pope uh, III, uh, Pope per Paul III, Catholic bishops and cardinals met at the Council of Trent and agreed on the following doctrines. One, the Pope and the Pope's interpretation of the Bible was final. Any Christians who submitted their own interpretation was a heretic. Two, Christians were not saved by faith alone. As Luther argued, they were saved by faith and good works. Three, the Bible and the church tradition shared equal authority for guiding a Christian's life. And four, and last, uh, indulgences, pr- uh, pr- uh, uh, pilgrimages and venerations of holy relics were all valid expressions of Christian piety through the selling of, in- though the selling of indulgences were banned. So they said that they were real, but they, they banned them. So the church also drew up a list of books, um, the index of forbidden books that were considered to be dangerous to the Catholic faith. Catholic bishops uh, throughout Europe were ordered to gather up the offensive books, including Protestant Bibles, and burn them in a great bonfire. The church established the Inquisition, a court whose purpose was to punish heretics, uh, those who denied or contradicted church, church uh, teachings, and trials were held to examine, often by torture, those who denied or opposed a church teachings. So what was the impact of all of this? Uh, because of the Reformation, a religion no longer unified Europe. The Reformation tended to strengthen the power of secular rulers like Henry VIII and others, paving the way for the emergence of the modern nation-state. In Protestant countries, people no longer had allegiances to the Pope. The secular ruler became the highest authority uh, in the land. In Catholic uh, countries, the church gave more power to secular rulers to help fight Protestantism, so they gave more uh, 
they gave more power to like the king or the emperor or whatever, but only to fight Protestants. In general, France, Italy, Spain, and southern Germany remained Catholic. Northern Germany, England, Holland, and Scandinavia became Protestant. And finally, the reformers' successful revolt against the church authority laid the groundwork for rejection of Christian belief that occurred in Western culture in later centuries. So that being said, though, Catholic is still the majority Christian religion. The Christians are diverse, uh, but um, the new, a new study, recent study, found that about half are Catholic. Protestants, broadly defined, make up 37%. Orthodox Christians comprise 12%. And Christians world uh, of Christians worldwide and other Christians, such as Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and others, uh, make up the remaining 1% of the global Christian population. So, though the ideas of Luther and the Reformers was better than the Catholics, in some ways, ultimately both wanted power. The Catholics wanted power to be in the hands of the church, and the Reformers wanted power to be in the hands of the state that supported them. As it relates to England, uh, King Henry VIII only wanted a divorce. If the Pope had given it to him, he would have remained a Catholic, but since the Pope refused, he created the Church of England as himself as, as the head. As a devout uh, religious man, King Henry murdered approximately 57,000 people during his reign. His son succeeded him, but died in his teens. And then his daughter Mary ascended to the throne and took England back to Catholicism by burning 300 heretics during her short five-year reign. And she was known as Bloody Mary. So neither the Protestants nor the Catholics are based on morality or even on the teachings of the so-called Christ. Both are about power and sex and debauchery. Each believes that the other to be immoral. And in that sense, they're both right. All right, that is it for this week's segment of Bible Study with Atheist Mike and for the overall episode this week. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll close out for this week. And welcome to the closing segment. Uh, this week, I'm titling the closing segment, Not Far From the Tree. So this clothing story shows the symbiotic nature of a strong black mother and daughter team. Too many times, the news is focused on the destructive nature of uh, some characteristics within the black family relations. But this story shows us that that is not the norm. The norm is that our families are strong and supportive of one another. And here's the story. Quote, Years ago, Dr. Audrey Muhammad asked a friend if she thought that it was too late for her to go back to college to get a doctorate degree. Her friend said, quote, yes, because you probably won't finish it. Many over 45 don't complete it, end quote. Luckily, she didn't listen to her friend, but decided to go to school anyway. She initially took out a loan from her retirement account, but hated to lose so much money to taxes and early withdrawal penalties. Dr. Muhammad needed to find another way to help her fund her education, so she inquired if her employer had a tuition and reimbursement program. They did, but it only reimbursed her for $2,000 a year. And so her daughter, uh, Hazana, uh, on the other hand, had a full scholarship to the illustrious North Carolina Ag- Agriculture and Technical State University. And she said, quote, why don't you apply for a scholarship, end quote. And then that's exactly what she did. 
After joining the National Alliance of Black Schools and Educators and helping to promote their annual conference in 2021, she applied for their competitive graduate scholarship and received it. Along with a work with working a part-time job, the scholarship allowed her to pay for the final year of her doctoral program. In the end, the mother and daughter team graduated one month apart. Her daughter, Hasana, graduated in May with a Bachelor of Science degree in Computer Science, and the mother graduated with her doctoral degree in Educational Leadership in Higher Education from Wilmington University in Delaware. As a, as a uh, college success instructor and academic advisor, Dr. Muhammad freely shares guidance to students uh, and in the community. So she's helping others to achieve what she did. So this mother and daughter both graduated in the same year and graduated debt-free. Good thing, since the SCOTUS just said that no student debt can be forgiven. Uh, and so uh, Black mothers and daughters, as well as Black fathers and sons, this this family has shown that they can join together to help their family and the community succeed. And so they've shown us how to do it. And I think that we should all follow that path. All right. That's the end of the closing segment and end of the episode this week. I'd like to remind you the intro is Transcend by K.I.R.K. The outro music is Ending by Micaiah Beats. This podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, and a bunch of other platforms. But if it's not on the platform where you typically get your podcast, send an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com and I will be sure to get it added. Once there, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if it's a feature, leave me a five-star review. And I leave you with these words from Frederick Douglass. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. The struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Thanks for listening, everyone, and until next time, keep fighting for our right to be black and beautiful.